Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet, Chasing Bear. Well, we was walking down through here, there's a bunch of dogs free-ranging, and we looked down and seen the track, but they took off with we... We didn't really want all of them to go, but they're gone. (laughs) Thanks for checking out the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I want to give a little bit of history, a little bit of background about this podcast and why I was where I was at and what had actually happened even that day and the day before. I just got back from being in Eastern Tennessee, Tracy and Ben Jones. They are a father and son that have a long family history of hunting with plots in the Appalachian Mountains for bear. I'd contacted Ben several weeks ago and said, hey, I'd like to film a hound hunt. He said, well, come on. And I said, well, I've got two days. And that's a short time to be on a successful hunt. But the day before I left was when They had the massive snowstorm over in eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina. We hunted for two days, and it had some tremendous bear races, and I really got to see some fantastic dog work. 
and we had a race that started at 10 o'clock in the morning on the first day I was there that lasted until 9 o'clock at night when Ben went in in the dark and pulled his dogs off of a off of a bear that was basically walking on the ground. I was war to the bone in terms of physical strength. Ben is a mountain man. He's 25 years old, 24, and he, gee whiz, he can walk like a gazelle in the mountains. <laughs> and I had a hard time, but an awesome time keeping up with him for two days. One day, we had that long race. The second day, we started out pretty quick, found a bear two and a half miles in, on foot leading dogs we found a bear and the the bear immediately jumped and ran into the bear sanctuary and so the race ended we caught the dogs off the bear and pretty much our hunt was over bear hunting with hounds is something that many people don't understand and if you're listening to this podcast and you've never done it you probably don't get it at bear hunting magazine our desire is to show all aspects of bear hunting and bear hunting with hounds is the most traditional method to hunt bear in North America. All these guys, Daniel Boone hunted with hounds. A lot of historical hunters hunted with hounds. In North Carolina, the, the, the state dog is the plot hound. The plot hound was developed in the Appalachian Mountains and it, its identity was formed around bear hunting. It's a super small world. It's a, it's a small niche of people that are committed to this really lifestyle. You can't just have a bear hound. You can't just have two bear hounds. If you're gonna be a serious bear hunter, you gotta have a pack of hounds. It's a year round process, it's expensive. And these guys devote a big section of their life to training and raising bear hounds. And a bear hound is an exceptional animal that has to have a unique set of characteristics I mean, just really make it an exceptional guy. Might somebody that didn't know might look out into the backyard of some bear hunter and see what their eyes perceive as a rough-looking old hound. But let me tell you, if you really knew what that was, you'd look at that hound and you'd say, "My goodness, that is an exceptional animal that has been bred for nose, for speed, for athleticism, for fearlessness. It's been bred for for trainability and loyalty." It's been bred to have good, solid feet so it can run for days and days. It's been bred for grit, the desire to, and, and the courage to stay on a bear when a bear turns to fight. There's a lot of things that have to happen. So the bear hound world is extremely complex and hard to understand. And here's the most important thing. The bear hound world, and bear hunting with hounds, is the lowest hanging fruit. And I want to tell you why it's important to you if you don't even hunt with hounds and don't care to hunt with hounds and maybe you don't even like hounds but if you're a hunter and you want to continue to see our freedoms as hunters in the modern age continue I will tell you that bear hunting with hounds is the low-hanging fruit for the anti-hunting community in this country in this world and their desire is to pick it off and to absolutely extinguish it why does that matter to the guy that doesn't even like hound hunting is because in the long game, and that's what we've all got to turn our eyes towards, is the long game. If we truly are concerned about the freedoms that our sons and daughters and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will have long after we are gone should this earth persist, is that we got to play the long game. And in the long game, if they pick off the low-hanging fruit, 
then all of a sudden, the next rung up the ladder is the low-hanging fruit, and they'll be after something next. And the anti-hunting community has a strategy of incrementalism. They want to pick us off one section at a time. And eventually, there'll be a generation of people that wake up and will be like Europe, and where people can run around and hunt game birds raised on a farm. And the very thing that has given American hunters the identity that we have and the freedoms that we have, and the, the very thing that has made wildlife thrive in this country more than any other place on the planet, North American Model for Wildlife Conservation is the most successful model of wildlife conservation ever in the history of man. We have more big game than any place on the planet, and it's because of conservation-minded hunters. And bear hunting with hounds is a tool used by bear managers to harvest bear in a regulated way. And even if you don't like hound hunting, even if you've been offended by hound hunters in states that you live, I petition you to give them a chance. And just out of principle, just out of principle, support hound hunting. And I also implore the hound hunters to be respectful to, to respect property boundaries and to respect other hunters in the woods and to, you know, clean up their game in a lot of ways. If we can all stand in unification in these certain areas, it's going to mean a lot. So, hey, that's a quick commentary on why this matters to someone who's not a hound hunter. I think you're going to enjoy this podcast. You're going to learn a lot about bear hounds. You're going to learn about the history of bear hunting in the Appalachian Mountains. And I had a great conversation with Tracy Jones and Joy. All right. Welcome to the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I am in Greenville, Tennessee. Not Greenville, Tennessee proper, though. We're outside of Greenville, Tennessee. Yeah. 10 miles? Yep, about 10 miles south of Greenville. Okay. And I have been bear hunting with... Uh, tl and ben jones for the last two days i've kind of put them in a bind i i talked to him about three weeks ago talked to ben and i'm going to introduce who these guys are i've got tl with me here but uh about three weeks ago i guess i'd contacted you guys and said i want to do a bear hunt in the appalachians and you guys were were hospitable enough to let me come up and hunt but I only had two days, and then the day before I got here, we had this real bad snow, um, which, according to y'all, could have been good, could have been bad. And uh, but I came up here, and man, I've had an awesome time. I really have. So thank you so much. Who I've got here in front of me is Tracy Jones, and so Tracy is uh, Tracy's a pastor here and bear hunter. Tracy, introduce yourself. My son and I live in Greene County, Tennessee. My my papa, uh, a lot of people knew him, Barry Tarleton. He's well known with plot people. And then my dad, Terry Jones, was a bear hunter plots. And I have several other family members that were uh, really good bear hunters and plot men. My cousin, Charles Lowry, and my cousin, Rocky Lowry. And uh, it's just always been a you know a family thing and a lot of friends around us, too yeah mm-hmm. so so you guys have been hunting plots since the 1950s when when barry 
Barry Tarleton, your grandfather, started getting plots. Yeah, we don't know the exact date that he got his first plot. Um, my cousin Charles got a puppy from him in 1965, so we know mm. it predates 1965. Uh, Papa went on a bear hunt with Vaughn Plot, mm-hmm. and if I remember correctly, it was down in Gatlinburg before Gatlinburg was really commercialized. Mm-hmm. And sometime during that hunt, Vaughn Plot just convinced my my grandpa who was hunting a, different things he coon hunted mostly and had started treeing some bear at night wanted to bear hunt and uh, Vaughn talked him into to giving plots a try but then he wouldn't sell him a dog <laughs> and so my papa started looking around trying to find a plot and uh, I'm not exactly sure where he got his first one at I don't think he really remembered uh, where the first one came from um early on he did get a plot out of kentucky from a man named benny moore but i don't think that was the first one but that was an earlier one right yeah yeah and so the 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 strain of dogs that came from barry and charles lowry was is this houston valley line yeah uh like i said we know that he had a litter of pups in 65. I don't know what those dogs were exactly. Where the Houston Valley line really got its start was in the early 70s, uh, Papaw got a female pup from Gene White who had uh, White Holla plots, and they were very close friends. And if you look at the paperwork, Gene basically was just getting started in plots too. And Gene had got the White Holly Jr. dog, and it was out of uh, some Kermit Allison dogs and uh, I think some Weems bred dogs. Hmm. And White Holly Jr. was a dog my, my pet ball really thought a lot of. He hunted with him several times up in Canada. And this female pup my pet ball got, he, her name was Jap. She got hurt and was physically unable to keep bear hunting so he went back to gene and they did a pup swap and Mm -hmm. uh, gene kept the jap dog and my papa got a dog that uh, is called on her papers her name was roberta they called her polly around the house Mm -hmm. but roberta uh, became the foundation of houston valley plots yeah yeah i think that's a good place to even jump in and and describe some of the kind of a strain of hounds i think some people that listen to this may not be real familiar with hounds and even hound hunting over here and so what what seems to have happened and terry tell me if this is terry tracy tell me if if this is accurate is that in these mountains there would be guys that started bear hunting they started getting good dogs and they they bred good dogs to good dogs and they typically these mountain people wanted to keep they 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 wanted to keep dogs in the hands of family and the fan in the hands of loyal friends and and keep them pretty tight knit for many reasons one of which would be that if you sold dogs or sent dogs way off if it was the if it was the best dog in the world, you wouldn't really be able to have that much access to to breed back into it. But these guys wanted to they wanted to keep their good dogs pretty tight, 
and and there's these so in the, in in the different breeds and especially the plot breed there's these pretty tight strains of plots so they're all registered plot hounds i mean so there's in it's it's a breed just like a american border collie i mean you know plot hound but inside of the plot hound it's almost like there's these real tight strains and houston valley's one of them and there's all these others too right but it, to me that's really neat because yeah. just the the culture and the and the long standing history of breeding i mean you could look back at papers on your dogs and you hunted with a lot of those dogs and then before you were born probably there was yeah. a lot of dogs but you would know the history of those dogs you would know the characteristics of those dogs and so what you've got 60 years into this tight line bred in some cases strain of dogs is is something that's really predictable from a breeding standpoint and that it's going to be i mean you you breed dogs you i mean they're not all going to be perfect but you know what you're getting right um our pups right now depending on what females bred to what male go back about i think 12 generations to roberta Hmm. and uh, almost every dog that we've bred that we have now goes back to roberta and so you know that's our foundation that we work from and the jap dog actually became foundational for gene's dogs and I think she was also really foundational for uh, some of the poly dogs out of Michigan, too, the Jap dog was, mm. and some other folks. And then later on, Steve Filter ended up with a pup out of the Roberta dog in Big Timber. A lot of people are familiar with Cascade Big Timber. Mm-hmm. And the Bronco dog was really important in his breeding program. So the Roberta dog has a lot of influence in the plot breed that I guess – some folks wouldn't pay attention to, you know, my grandfather, my papa was never into advertising. And, right. um, but in reference to the family type thing, I won't delve into plot history because even among hardcore plot people, that's so controversial <laughs> that, uh, I just don't want in the middle of that, uh, yeah. there, there's basically two theories when you boil it all down to the, the bottom line. One is pretty much, the Plot brothers came over from Germany, and they were never outcrossed on anything whatsoever and bred down with the family. Right. Uh, the other theory and what is... what you're talking about is the origins of the Plot breed, which... Right. Which, which, which would have come from Germany pretty much in, eventually into North Carolina, and then specifically to western North Carolina into Plot Balsam. Right. And then would have been filtered out. Plot Balsam out. is a place. It's a place. It's a valley. Yeah. And then the plots would have been filtered out from plot balsam, you know, pretty much around the globe now. Yeah. And uh, and they're the only, let me let me say, and again, if somebody that's listening to this that knows plots, this is stuff that they know or bear hounds. Sure. But, but for somebody that doesn't have any context for that, um, the plot hound is the only is the only hound that isn't wasn't bred from like European foxhounds. Is that correct? That's correct. And they yeah. they were bred from German big game dogs. I yes. Mean, yeah. Basically. Yeah. And and the and the unique thing about plots is that they were they were known as bear dogs. So in the bear dog world, there's all these different breeds of hounds from 
Walker, Redbone, Blue Tick, English, Black and Tan. There's there's all these different breeds, which all those breeds were descendants of European foxhounds. The plot was different, and, and, and all those breeds make fine bear dogs in different strains for sure, and people use them all over the sure. country. Mm-hmm. But what's, you, what's cool to me about the plots is they they were known and developed their their identity as bear dogs sure well i don't consider myself a plot historian at all you know men like john jackson and bob plot have written extensively on that subject right. and that would be the go-to people there but yeah but you have the theory that the plot brothers you know came from germany and they would have been basically pure down through the family lines until they started filtering out to others and some men still, you know, view their particular strain as going back to the originals. Uh, the second theory, you know, just basically fundamentally with a lot of twists and turns would be that along the way the plot had X dog added to it here, X dog added right. to it there. Then that's where the sort of the disagreements among the plot historians come yeah. in. And yeah, uh, if I... I mean, I was raised with mountain people, and in an isolated location, um, it would be hard for me to believe that at some point a mountain family didn't add something here or something there. Yeah. Yeah. Or even something accidental that yeah. bred one of these dogs. And I, I wouldn't, you know, yeah. fight that with somebody that has the purest, you know, theory, but... Uh, Mountain people are pragmatic people because, uh, honestly, because of poverty. Yeah. And uh, they couldn't afford to keep a dog that didn't carry its weight. Yeah. And they couldn't keep, you have to keep a lot of dogs. If if you want a line of hounds and you only want your own name on the paperwork, in other words, every dog on that paperwork is yours and you're the only one, nobody else has any influence in your dogs at all, you have to keep a lot of dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of dogs. Yeah. That's why, you know, this discussion came up really this week through a, a Facebook post. Somebody had asked the question, you know, where are the plots that are strictly line bred with no outside influences? And the best answer to that question came from Ray Brown. And, uh, you know, Ray is a very well known, well respected bear hunter and plot man. And and Ray said it's not that nobody is breeding line bred dogs. It's that it's a family of dogs a lot of people stick with. In other words, it may have come from the same source, but the name on it will be Brown or the name will be Weems or the name will be Tarleton or the name will be Lowry and so on. But if you go back far enough, it comes from the same source. They all came from the same place. Yeah. And there was very few originally registered plots that these things come out flow out of. well the plot breed wasn't didn't become an official registered ukc breed until i think 1948 that's right yeah so it's relative relatively new that that p- these dogs have had papers kept and i know there's historical records of the plots keeping records of dogs and breeding and different stuff but yeah uh, let me let me take the conversation this way I would like for you to describe and envision somebody that didn't know bear dogs, mm-hmm. characteristics of a bear dog. Because, and I and I can, or, or what you're looking for 
in a dog because to me my history with hounds originally started with coon hunting when i was Mm -hmm. in high school i had dogs for several years and really learned to love and appreciate the hound sports we never even dreamt of running bear with these hounds we just didn't and and when i started understanding bear hounds i realized that this is really an elite animal yep. that's being bred and I, I believe i heard steve steve heard said it in, in in an article in bear hunting magazine that he said of all the all the animals that man has put his fingerprint of influence on in breeding from cattle to horses to anything he felt like that there was more things that had to line up right for a bear dog than just about anything and it there's it was an interesting statement because he talked about a dog's got to have a super good nose a dog's got to be a super athlete to be able to run and chase these bears i mean we've been in these mountains I mean, steep as a cow's face, and these dogs put on 12, 13 miles yesterday. I don't know. I mean, yeah. running straight up and in down snow in the snow and ice. Yeah, right. So they they got to have they got to have an incredible nose, which not every hound has. The variance in a hound's nose is a broad spectrum. Some can smell this amount of scent, and some can smell this. So you know, nose, athleticism, uh, treeing. When you're when you're running big game, that trees. And again, this is for someone who doesn't know the sport. A, a dog, there there are running dogs that all they want to do is run game. Mm-hmm. And when that game goes up a tree, they'd be done. They're done. But a tree dog has got to have that instinct to run the game. And when it goes up a tree, he's got to have the instinct to sit there and bark. I mean, until his master gets there, until that animal comes down out of the tree. And so that takes a really special animal, that, and that's bred in. I mean, even to this day, inside of good bear dog lines, there are dogs that aren't good tree dogs. Maybe they'll run a bear, but they're, you know, when they get to the tree, they're not that interested. So that's a dog that is not bred and, and is kind of left out of the, the breeding program probably in the future. But point being, there's a lot of things. What are, what are you guys after in these Tennessee mountains? What do you need a dog? What are the key characteristics? Well, before I start, you're asking for a matter of opinion. That's and right. And if you ask, you know, 100 bear hunters, you are going to get variations. Yeah. But for us, I think you start at the finish line and then work backwards in breeding. Okay. Instead of looking at, instead of looking at the dog and looking at his paperwork, if you're considering it for breeding, you need to look at the finish line. In other words, the most important thing about a big game hound is does it produce big game and all the other variables lead to that but you don't want pieces to a clock you want to know what time it is right and and you mean you want to be able to catch game tree game that's right yep if you if the dog is not a game catcher and it's not showing up on the the end yep something's missing something's not there so producing game is is the is it you know the coon hunters like they they have a big argument going on now about dogs at slick tree a lot right well if you're playing a points game some of that can be overlooked i guess yes 
But if you're walking five or six hours in the mountains to a dog that has nothing, that's a big deal. It's pointless. Yeah. There's no there's no points up there. There's yeah. no scorecard. Does that make sense to yeah, you? Absolutely. So producing is the number one. And, and thing. what you're describing too is a is a dog that just has a natural ability. I mean, inside of you turn out ten bear dogs, there's going to be percentage of those dogs that just time after time after time and when you say get to the finish line what you mean is at the bottom of a bear tree mm-hmm. or have a bear bait up or whatever yep. it takes i mean it, or, it, or even cross into the sanctuary like today with it i mean that's not that dog's fa- fault that there's an imaginary line there right right yeah 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 what 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 he's talking about is today we had a really good bear race we jumped a bear in a good spot and uh, the bear headed and crossed a crossed a road and went into an area that we couldn't hunt, and so they they caught the dogs off the track. But if it if we'd have been able to run that bear, we probably would have got him. But we had to pull him off. But right, yeah, yeah. But the the traits that lead to the finish line, in my personal opinion, my viewpoint, right at if not at the top of the list, right at the top of the list is drive, desire. Hmm. Because a dog could, a house dog is extremely intelligent. Some of them are. Bird dogs, some of those, one of the smartest dogs I ever worked with was an English pointer. But neither the house dog or the English pointer will run a bear. That's right. But there, So there has to be that innate desire that when it gets that scent of bear, for whatever reason in that DNA code, it runs it. Mm-hmm. And it don't want to stop until it's over. Treed, bayed, caught off, or whatever. Yeah. So some people call it desire. Some people call it drive. Some people call it heart. It doesn't matter how smart a dog is if it has no drive. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter how good of a nose it has if it doesn't have any drive. To me, drive or heart is the engine that everything else is built around. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can think of one dog that I had that wasn't the grittiest dog. He wasn't the fastest dog. Um, He didn't have a super cold nose. But anything I turned him on, whatever it was, he just had no quit. And so he made up for a lot of not what I would call faults because he was sufficient. Right. He just wasn't 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 exceptional. Yeah. But except for one area, and that was in drive. Mm. And uh, he he was one of the favorite dogs I ever had. He mm. wasn't flashy. Nobody knows his name. But uh, if you turned him on something, he he meant to catch it. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that that statement can be qualified too by saying or describing. I think people that have never bear hunted with hounds don't realize how intensive a intense it is to tree or, mm. or catch a bear i mean like you turn 10 dogs loose on a red hot bear track and that bear runs for 12 miles in these mountains there's going to be some dogs that drop out of the race mm-hmm. there's going to be some dogs that end up back at the truck mm-hmm. there's going to be some dogs that end up sleeping on the side of the mountain because they they just laid down i mean it's it's yeah. it happens um and that happens to good dogs too. Don't I'm not saying that. Yeah, there's but there's a lot of variables to that. Many, yeah. many, many. Yeah. And and but the point being, there there's 
there's certainly some dogs that don't have the the drive that others do that's a fact yeah yeah and so that's what you're that's what you're looking for to, to me that's the number one quality and without yeah. it you have you have no framework to build around yeah that's probably a good quality of humans too isn't it it is <laughs> yeah you I mean, make up for a well, lot of stuff if you got a little bit of drive and yeah. desire well i grew up in the uh time frame when boxing was something that that men watched a lot it wasn't on pay-per-view it was a national sport everybody the names of boxers were household names you know everybody mm-hmm. knew the people who were going to fight and it was on regular tv and people would gather up in their living rooms and watch a match and but i bring that up to say it's just, it's impossible to whip somebody who won't quit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and a dog that just will not quit yeah is pretty hard to beat yeah yeah what would what would be okay so if we were going back from the the finish line backwards that desire would be a number one trait what would what would be some of the other traits that you'd look for in a hound well if a dog is is exceptionally intelligent i think that's where some of your better trail dogs come from okay you know a dog can be a, a, a an asset as a bear dog and not be your main trail dog tell us what a trail dog is well when somebody gets ready to start a, a bear race normally they'll have a particular dog or dogs that they count on to start the track and trail it up when the conditions are not real good and get it jumped as the other dogs come along behind with the idea the trail dog gets the bear up and running as the other dogs catch them from behind Hmm. and you know different people different areas hunt different ways but traditionally through the mountains here men would have a dog or dog that were was their primary trail dog and then the other dogs would be take some place in their pack, you know, some value somewhere. Right. It's not that the other dogs couldn't run a track, but they're just something that separates a real top-notch trail dog apart. And I think intelligence plays a role in that. Um, yeah. If a dog's, you know, if he has a mind to figure things out, like. You'll see dogs sometimes even running a bear that's already jumped, and they'll get in some rocks. And for whatever reason, one dog will go right on through the rocks, just lickety-split. And another two or three dogs get hung up at the same place the other one went through and can't figure out how to go across. Right. Well, there's a reason that one dog goes through. Yeah. He, he has the mental capacity to figure out how to, how to make it. Right. Or he at one time maybe pre- prior in his life he figured it out once and so he had the intelligence to figure it out again yeah and you know, maybe he just stumbled on it the first time you know yeah yep so intelligence i think is a factor there and then uh, of course the obvious things like endurance and stamina mm-hmm. and how long they can can go that right there to me as somebody who wasn't it, it, it 
hadn't had a ton of history with bear hounds until the last five years. That's what blows my mind mm-hmm. is the athleticism and endurance that these dogs have to have. I have so much respect for bears. Mm-hmm. And, and I think bear hunters, bear, guys that bear hunt with hounds, have a, a whole different kind of respect in terms of these bears can run and run and run and run straight up and down mountains. I mean, these mountains we were in t- today and yesterday, just unbelievable. So it takes a heck of an animal to overcome that. Yeah, there, there's a misperception among non-hunters and a, and a misperception among hunt, some hunters that using hounds isn't fair chase. Mm. And uh, nothing can be further from the truth. Yeah. You know, a, a bear is fully aware that he's being chased. Whereas other methods, which I'm not opposed to other methods, sure. legal methods, do it. Yeah. But other methods, that bear may not even be aware you're anywhere in the world. Yeah. And then he's dead. Yeah. With the hounds, he has everything at his disposal. You're on his turf. You're on his home ground. He lives there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He knows where everything's at. They have, according to some research I've read, they really have a mapping capacity to remember where they've yes. been. And uh, yes. Uh, how things lay they just have all the advantages and a dog with endurance you know gives you an advantage i mean like you said they're incredible athletes and so that endurance would play out in actual practical terms with having dogs that had really good feet like and yeah. dog people probably wouldn't or someone who wasn't a dog person might not understand that but these dogs run so far, running in rough terrain, rocky terrain, snowy terrain. They've got to have genetically predisposed feet that are tight, mm-hmm. that their pads are thick, that they're, you know, one of the guys we were hunting with today, Pat, was showing me one of his dog's feet. And that dog had hair that kind of grew over the edge of the pads. In his mind, that was a, a, a good trait that made it had tough feet, you right. know. Um, and not all dogs are going to be that way, but got to have tough feet, got to have, for this endurance, uh, trim dogs. I mean, these aren't big hounds. A lot of people would no. think bear hound, big hound. I mean, what would be the bandwidth of weight for your, for Houston Valley Plots? Well, for, for our dogs, I prefer a male dog that doesn't go over, you know, 50 or 55 pounds. Mm-hmm. And a female, I prefer not to go over 45 or 50 pounds. Yeah. And, uh, but... Then again, you know, a dog being a little larger than that or a little smaller than that is not always a determining factor of its endurance. True. Or its drive. Right, right. And uh, sometimes a bigger dog that you wouldn't think could carry himself can run all day. Mm-hmm. And um, so. But that size. That size, you know. Is, is usually pretty good for a dog being able to run day after day after day and not break down. Yeah. I mean, typically a bigger bigger hound is going to break down a little faster and by that I mean these guys are hunting I mean I think Ben said he's hunted every day since Thanksgiving and it's November December the 13th or 14th today well you know the more the more weight a dog carries and the bigger he gets there's so many factors at some at some point there's a there's a breaking point there where that's just too big yeah yeah he may keep up for an hour or you might keep up for two hours 
but that great big, you know, 8,500-pound dog, generally speaking in the mountains, is not going to be an all-day dog. Yeah. Now, somebody listening somewhere is going to say, oh, yes, I had yeah, old Rufus, and, and right. he weighed 150 pounds and can run for four days straight, and that's fine. Yeah. But Rufus is an outlier. He's that's an right. exception to the rule. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah I, 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 I've found that amongst the, the bear hound guys that I've run into is that they typically like the, the smaller dogs. Yeah. And even in, in long legs doesn't equate to speed. No. Because on a track, nope. it's not – when you, well, that brings us into another characteristic, Tracy. That I think is, I know you're going to list, is that you're looking for a dog that's got speed. Um, yeah. Just to talk about that. Well, what I was going to say was that speed doesn't come from having long legs or short legs. Speed comes yeah. from being able to navigate scent and move through that scent, track it with its head up. You know. Well, the the discussion we're having right now about traits you like seems to be a I don't I'm not sure you would call it a cyclical thing, but there seems to be different factors during different time periods that everybody's after. Okay. I can remember years ago that everybody wanted something more gritty. Yes. And they started trying to breed. I've seen them even try to breed pit bull into the into the hounds, and that was a huge train wreck because <laughs> the dogs would get to the tree, and that that desire to catch something didn't stop at the tree and they'd catch other dogs. Mm. That was a terrible train wreck here locally. Mm. Um, then uh, nose is something that seems to be something at points in time everybody's trying to find more nose, more tracking ability, more trailing ability. Yeah. And then recently, there's been a lot of talk, it, well, at least among people that I'm familiar with, about speed. I want to be faster. And fast is good. But when you, and Ben and I have discussed this, when you look at a hound's physical makeup, it's only going to be able to go so fast because of the way it's built. If you put that in horse terms, there's a reason that the records in the Kentucky Derby and some of the other horse races are seldom broken. Right. Because no matter how much money a billionaire has and no matter how much access he has to the best trainers and no matter how much access he has to everything he could possibly need to be breed a faster horse, it genetically cannot be done. Right. It tops out. Yeah. And a hound's the same way. They can only get so fast. Right. In terms of just like foot speed in a race. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you have hounds that are fast enough to produce, to me they're fast enough. Yeah. Yeah. Fast enough to catch game. <laughs> right. Yeah. If, if you're catching what you want to catch, you have enough speed. Yeah. And I, I think, too, that may, you know, what I've seen in different places is that, that – uh you know, I've heard somebody say speed kills, talking about yeah. just a, a, an animal being able to track fast enough that they just just gain on a bear. I mean, a bear's a bear is laying in his bed. He hears a hound, you know, 500 yards away, open, and he goes, man, I wonder if that hound's coming after me. He, he doesn't actually think that, but, you know, 
and, and the hound's getting closer, getting closer. Finally, that hound comes within range of threatening that bear. The bear takes off running. Well, the ability of that hound to pick up that scent and overcome that bear, and again, it's not foot speed, but it's, it's the ability for that hound to navigate the scent, navigate the terrain, you know. Um, well, I mean, the bottom line is the dog's got to be fast enough to run the bear down and either stop it or make it so uncomfortable it goes up a tree. Yeah, yeah. So the dog has to be faster than the bear. He's got to be. Yep. Yep. Got to be. Well, and, and like you said today, or like you said a little bit ago, th- this hound hunting is not a given. I've been here two days, and, and we've yep. yet to we've yet to see a bear in a tree. We've been, yep. we've been met with tough conditions. But before I got here, you guys were treeing bears, and I'm sure as soon as I leave this afternoon, you are going to tree bears tomorrow. But it's it's tough. I mean, we yep. ran a bear yesterday for uh, for miles. Well, the, the race yesterday, what, you turn loose at 9 o'clock or so, I'm not that's, sure. That's about right. And the last dogs were pulled off of it well after dark. Yeah. Yep. So they're tough. Super tough. Yeah. And it's a, it, it really is a fair chase hunt, I mean, when you when you look at it that way. But I, I don't get ex- – I mean, you've been here two days. We run, you know, we run, had one race that lasted all day. We didn't kill it. Another one today that we run got off into the sanctuary, yeah. which is, you know, an imaginary line between where you're allowed to kill and where you're not. Right. But I don't get excited about that because, I mean, we've we've did this so long. I mean, the bottom line is sometimes the bear win. Yeah. And if they didn't, what would be the point? Yep. Yeah. 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 They do win sometimes. They do win sometimes. <laughs> and I, I think that's part of the fun of it. Yeah, it is. And uh, you say, well, if you had better dogs, you would have won. Well, you know, I'm no expert, but I've seen a few bear dogs. And uh, maybe somebody had a dog somewhere that if we'd had it here yesterday, we would have, it would have made a difference. But <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I, if, so. If it's out there, I, you know, I, there's some people with some great dogs. But, you know, if dogs run one all day long just how much more can you ask right you know i've i've i sit in a unique position at bear hunting magazine and i've made some i've i have been for somebody that's not been in a bear hound world very long i've had the opportunity to hunt with some of the some of some some great bear houndsmen all over the country um and i can tell you they all get beat sure they do they really do absolutely i mean you you see obviously you're not going to post a picture on facebook of a you know back of your truck empty and say you know there's no bear i mean you you, you hear the good stories you hear the times when the dogs get did great and uh, and if you're closer to these people obviously you hear the good and the bad well you and i are friends on facebook and i enjoy social media because i like to see what other people's doing hunting and other yeah. things sometimes i do purposely put on social media bears one us zero <laughs> yeah or the yeah. bear one today or yeah you away. would do that I do do that, yeah. Because I, you know, I laugh about it. I, I don't. If I if if the dogs were junk and we could never catch anything, I wouldn't be laughing. Yeah. But I just know we got beat. Yeah. And if you get beat by a great opponent, there's you know, some honor there's, in there, that. There's, there? there's no defeat in that. Yeah. So I enjoy that. I enjoy the aspect that that it's not a give me. And uh, 
it's a good day to me if you're out there and and you run up on an opponent that you know it's a worthy opponent you know if you turn a dog loose every time you turn it loose and the bear just popped up a tree i would i would grow weary of that i'd grow tired of that yeah yeah you know i think the biggest the biggest uh just you talking about being able to be content inside of you know not training a bear and it being difficult you know you grew up in these mountains in a time when it was really hard to tree a bear because there weren't as many here yeah we're, we're living and i asked you yesterday i said are we are you in the heyday of bears and in, in appalachian mountains and uh and there, there's probably different answers to that but no doubt there's a lot of bears here and a lot more than there used to be yeah when i was a kid growing up there was times when we might not find a bear for two or three days to even turn a dog loose on. Mm. And so, yeah, there's a lot more bear now than there was then. The trade-off is we're pinched a little tighter. There's still as much national forest, but they've closed all the gates pretty much. There's very few roads to drive, so access yeah. is foot only. Yeah. And uh, I know to some people that seems like it would make it more fair to the bears, but the problem is as you get older there's not too many people past say 50 or 55 that can still handle the mountains with any speed anymore yeah you know about dog speed i mean the hunter's got to go there too wherever the yeah. dog goes you don't walk with the dog track for track that's right but the the end game is you got to be wherever he stops yeah and we had a lot more access to the mountains when i was a boy to be able to get certain places and um uh, then so many people have moved in around the foot of the mountain from other areas that don't understand our culture, don't understand our history, have no clue what we're doing. Right. And uh, they'll buy, say, maybe an acre or two acres, and then they don't want anybody within earshot of them doing anything right. that they don't quite understand. Whereas years ago, you knew everybody. Yeah. Or if you didn't know them, some guy you were with knew them. And so we've sort of traded out. We got more bear, but less access. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense to that's you. A great, that's a great description of it, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and they've, you know, you you talked to me the other day about bear sanctuaries, and that's, that, that's a pretty neat concept. So in Tennessee, just to give a very general description of the bear sanctuary is they've got all this national forest massive amounts of national yep. forest and they've blocked off these huge sections i mean like right. thousands and thousands of acres that they say okay this is a bear sanctuary so you can hunt bear here you can hunt bear here but you can't hunt bear here and you can hunt other stuff there you can hunt deer there you can mm-hmm. hunt coon there you can do other stuff and and what these bear sanctuaries have done is, is help the bears you feel like well I would like to talk about that, and let me begin by saying on this subject that I personally appreciate what the TWRA has done, say, since the mid-60s. Now, I could be off a little bit in my timing of when their program started and so forth, Right. but from the mid-60s, which is just a little bit before I was born up through the mid-70s when I was a kid, they wanted to get the bar numbers up. And they implemented uh, what I call a three-pronged strategy. I don't know mm-hmm. what's on their paperwork at the TWRA, but right. from a hunter's perspective, it was this way. Number one, we only had one short kill season, and there was, a, uh, I think, two weeks in December. It was usually like December 1st to December the 14th kind of a deal. 
And when you had a short kill season, obviously less bear kill. Number two, it was always a late season. And the idea behind it was that bred sows would be uh, laid up. Yeah. So you'd kill less sows. So yeah. that helped with numbers. Then the third prong of that strategy were was the bear reserves. Yeah. And when I was a little kid, I can still remember uh, riding with my papa around the bear sanctuary where the bear we put into today. Yes. I rode with him and actually nailed up the sanctuary signs around that sanctuary. Mm. That are, Some of them are still there. They're little triangles. Mm. And uh, they're still there today. Well, the TWRA, uh, I, several years ago now, I'm going to say pushing 10 years, decided that they wanted the bear numbers to be lowered. There was too many bear. Now, we have argued over that. Obviously, there are more bear, but that's a different discretion than whether there are too many bear. Right. So the TWRA came up with the term cultural carrying capacity. Mm-hmm. And when I began to look into that, they did an article on it in their magazine about cultural carrying capacity. And basically, that means there are too many bear close to too many people. The amount of a certain species of wildlife that the human population will tolerate. Yeah basically yeah yeah cultural tolerance right now we have a good regional director here where we're at i like him a lot i know the biologist he he works hard but that term cultural carrying capacity and then an article in the magazine implied that bear was just way overpopulated and need to be severely reduced and they begin to implement plans to do that so i asked them the question the director and the biologist um what do you have a how many i ask them how many bear are in the state of tennessee well obviously they don't know how many total bear are here and there's no way to know but they go off based off from what i can tell primarily complaints that are called in that the Mm -hmm. wardens have to go answer and then they had a research method where they would take sardine cans and string them down through certain area yes and however many cans were hit they sort of tabulated the bear population extrapolate general population numbers from that one bear can hit all those cans in a night yeah so or two bear can hit all those cans but you can't say 10 hit cans equals 10 bear or whatever it's there are a lot of factors there the bottom line is we don't know exactly the total number of bear in tennessee you could not know they have started a new research method uh, where they put up barbed wire fence type enclosures and as the bear go in to get food it pulls hair, hair. out and they use that as samples that's probably more accurate yeah and uh, personally i don't go along with the idea that there are too many bear yeah but they implemented this thing where they brought in a lot more bow season uh and i'm not against people bow hunting they brought in shooting bear during deer season, you know, just if it passed by your tree stand kind of yeah. thing. Uh, they implemented uh, longer hound seasons. The hound people really didn't w- want to kill that many more bear, but pretty much if we weren't willing to kill them, they were going to get somebody else to. I see. Because mm. they wanted the numbers lowered, period. Yeah. So I guess <clears throat> the point being, yes, there, there are a lot more bear than they used to be, but... 
I doubt there'll ever Strilson. be too many bear for a bear hunter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to say it. You know, I think it's so interesting. And so this really shows the really the the heart of the modern conservation hunter is that we want wildlife to thrive. Yes. I mean, yeah. we, are, we are the best friend of bear. Well, that I mean, th- the three-pronged plan, and I, we were talking about – They've done away with short seasons because we have extremely long seasons now for kill. Right. Uh, And they've done away with having only a late season because we're starting all the way in October now. So the only prong of that plan left is the sanctuaries. Right. And I've heard talk recently that they want to do away with the sanctuaries, which I I hope they never do. Now, I'm going to say something here. I'm not a biologist. I don't pretend to be one, and I didn't sleep at a Holiday Inn last night. (laughs) But from what I've read, uh, sows like to go back and raise where they were born. Same general area. Yeah. I believe one of the reasons we have a stable bear population is because the bears that are actually being born and raised are generational from the same places. Right. And what we're killing is the overflow out of the sanctuaries. Yeah. If you take away the sanctuaries, more or less what you'll do is end up harassing bear in every location where how can anything ever be a traditional um, right. uh, ground to raise the little ones? What can they yeah. ever go back to? Where where can they get away from being run or treed or whatever, you know? Yeah. I think those sows need places that they can go back to that they're familiar with and raise their little ones where there's no encroachment at all. Right. Yeah. And so, again, a hound hunter saying keep the sanctuaries. Oh, absolutely. A hound hound hunter saying let's let's limit ourselves and say we will not kill bear in this big section section of ground. And I mean that those sanctuaries cost us a bear today. Yeah, and you guys are I'm saying fi- I'm fine with that. Yeah, the bear won. Yeah, yeah. You just catch your dogs off of it and laugh and give him a thumbs up. Yep, yep. You beat us today. We'll see you next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's great. And you know, so I mean, I've thought about it in these terms. If the way I view it is correct, and you're having generational den sites or den areas, areas where sows raise their little ones. If my grandfather was running those bear in the late 50s, mid-60s with plots, and now here I'm up in in me, my cousin Charles, my cousin Rocky, my cousin Terry, other family members, friends that we've had for years, our dogs are 12 generations. And to me, it's... uh, there's a lot of Appalachian, I don't know if pride is the, worst, is the word for it, but there's a lot of historical satisfaction for me to think that my dogs go back 12 generations to where we got started, and the bear we're running are still the same offspring of the bear those dogs were running. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're running them in the same places? Same places. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was really neat this week. To, to hear you Ben's commentary and your commentary just on th- this area you're hunting I mean really if you think I mean you've been hunting bear since you were a kid I mean decades of even that same mountain I mean you guys mm-hmm. have probably treed bears all over that mountain had races all over it you I mean your grandfather 
um, I mean, well, you live in this valley, but you know, you you just got so much history here. That's not normal. I mean, most people. Yeah. I mean, there. That's. I think that's something that's unique to to this region of the country too. Is that there's. I don't know. I don't see this in Arkansas. Well, Papaw's family came. The Tarletons came in in the mid 1800s, and my dad's side of the family, uh, the Reeves side, his mother's side, came in very similar along the time that, that the Crockett's came here. Hmm. And I meant uh, David Crockett's family. David Crockett was born in this same county where we're at here in Greene County. Hmm. And his family owned a mill just about three or four miles over here on a creek going in the river. Hmm. And when that when the Crockett people come in, it was very similar time that my dad's family came in. So, yeah, I mean, we've been here generation after generation after generation. Yeah. And uh, a lot of history and and a lot of tradition. But like we were discussing earlier, some traditions are really good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, they are. Yeah. Well, hey, as we – I want to give you an opportunity before we end to just say whatever you want about bear dogs and bear hunting. But before we do that, you told me some neat stories, and I'm trying to uh, – you told me some neat stories about uh, your grandfather. Um, tell the story about him coming into town. This isn't related uh, yeah. to bear hunting, but this is just – Well, our – our strain of plots, Houston Valley plots, um, originated out of where my grandfather was born. He was born in Houston Valley. So Houston Valley is a place. Yes, it's a place. He was born there, and uh, he was 13 years old before he ever went to Greenville for the first time. All he had ever been to was a little country store's. And he said his he was shocked when he got to Greenville because in his mind, town was just a very large building, a bigger country store. <laughs> he just thought he was going to a bigger store. Bigger store. And he said he couldn't believe all the buildings in town. Huh. Yeah. Thirteen years old, rode in a wagon. Wow. That's amazing. Yep. That's amazing. Any other neat family stories? You told me some that I, yeah. as you were telling me, I was like, I wish I could have recorded that. Um, I can't think of what they would what, exactly offhand, but I remember when you told me that, I was like, 13 years old before you ever went into town. Yep. And that was just right down here. This place was really geographically isolated. Uh, you know, the the mountains kind of just isolated people. Well, you told yep. me this. You said, you said the 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 rich people lived down the river bottoms. The poor people lived up yep. in these mountains. And, yeah, uh, that's the ironic thing today about how much how expensive the mountain land is. Yeah. You know, a local kid who wants to live here and work here and stay here, he can't even afford to buy a piece of property hardly anymore. Right. But the reason his ancestors were here is because nobody else literally wanted it. Yeah. Yeah. And so now people are wanting to live in the mountains just for yep. the recreational, just the aesthetics. Yep. I mean, these mountains are spectacular. Well, it was the worst ground possible for a farmer. I mean, you know, it goes to show you just how much our value system has changed, and and this is just progression of society, I suspect. But I mean, there was a time when aesthetics meant nothing. I, my dad's seventy years old, and he tells me he said, Clay, we used to not talk about views and you know, in terms of land. Like now, you go buy a piece of land or you build your house, 
in the mountains there in the Ozarks. It's like, man, I want a place where I have a beautiful view or, or land actually has more value if you got a nice view and you can look down. Mm-hmm. And he said, people used to not talk like that. People were yeah. a lot more just functional. And so, yep. you know, it, it makes sense. I mean, this this is tough ground to just live in. I mean, to walk up to your dogs, you got to walk up the hill. Ben at Ben's house, I mean, it, it's just you got to put your truck and four-wheel drive to get up his driveway half the time. I mean, well, it's just tough to live here. You know what I mean? Well, we have a lot of first-world problems now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Our our kids talk about the career they want when our forefathers only wanted a job. Right. I mean, my papa worked at Pet Milk Company from the time he was 16 until he was 65. Mm. And... Uh, was glad to just have a job he didn't have the luxury of wanting a career right or choosing a career oh no the choice was work or not eat and they preferred to eat and he was happy and satisfied he was one of the most content people i've ever known Mm. and uh, the principles that came out of that i mean just i could sit here all day and talk about the things that he, him or my dad or some of the other old timers you know believed in and just just one example when i would help my my papa build fence he wouldn't allow you to put your hands in your pockets i mean he could be down on his knees driving a steeple in the barbed wire and you were just waiting on him you know what he needed next and if he he caught me one day with my hands in my pockets and i mean just chewed me out royally and he was mm-hmm. not that kind of person he did I mean, he wasn't one to chew people out mm-hmm. but it made him mad because he saw me standing there with my hands in my pockets because in his mind if he had got caught with his hands in his pockets coming out of the depression he would could have lost his 50 cent hour job because so, so many other people wanted it mm-hmm. and he didn't want me uh, going to work just the perception with, yes. of being at work and you having your hands you in your pockets you did not put your hands in your pockets uh, if somebody was working i see he'd say watch me watch me watch what i'm doing and have what i need next yeah yeah and then my dad was fanatical about taking care of equipment and stuff i mean if if he bought something 20 years later it would be as good a shape as it was when he bought it new mm. because he grew up poor yeah and uh so those kinds of things, you know, I, I have had it much better than my grandpa had it. I had it much better than my dad had it. And, uh, but I wouldn't trade how I grew up for, for anything. Yeah. 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 Sometimes options aren't necessarily beneficial when you think about like all the options that we have now. Yeah. I mean, options in terms of career, where to live. I mean, like mm-hmm. like the the prosperity of, of where we live, the time we live in, has given us a lot of options. I mean, even yeah. like what to have for dinner. Who to marry. Who to marry. You know, 50, 60 years ago. You had a smaller 75 circle. 75 years ago, you knew three girls down the road, and you married one of them. <laughs> and you were happy, and you raised kids, and you built a home, and you had a job, and you stayed married for 70 years. Mm. And now you can use eHarmony.com and get all the stars to line up <laughs> and can't last six months. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not about the process. It's the heart of the people. Yeah. 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 <laughs> options aren't always good. No. That, that's a options long way create, from Options yeah. create a whole other set of issues 
you know. But but no. And and I I'll I'll steer it right back into the bear hound world yeah. in that it, as we close and I'm gonna give you you can be thinking about this, I'm gonna say, tell us a good bear hunting story to end it with. But this is what I was gonna say, is that these mountain people that built these lines and strains of plots and not just plots, any any line of bear dogs, man, they didn't have the luxury of keeping a dog that wasn't producing game. They they didn't have that luxury. And so if they had a dog, that dog had a purpose. If that dog didn't fulfill that purpose, it was gone. And so they yeah. had these they, they developed the foundations of these excellent lines of dogs that had all the stuff. And then today, to me it, it looks like, it feels like that we're kind of maybe have the option to even make that some of those lines better by the options that we do have because you can have a litter of pups, and this is what I mean. Mm-hmm. You can have a litter of pups. That female has nine puppies. You distribute those puppies to different people, and you're able to stay connected to those people just through technology, even if they live a long ways away. You're able to get reports on how they did, so you're able to negotiate a little bit and breed back into some better stuff maybe. Well, back you're talking about breeding back several years ago. Steve Filder, before Facebook was a thing, Steve Filder – had one of the first plot websites, plotdogs.com. I was still in Montana at that time. And uh, I wrote a thing on there, on Steve Filler's website one time. It was pretty lengthy, but it was basically in praise of a good dog. And uh, there's lots of talk. At, there was lots of talk at that time about who had the phenomenal, that was the word that was being used, who right. had the phenomenal dogs, who had them. Yeah. Because people were just starting to connect through social media. Yeah. And everybody wanted to know what everybody else had. Yeah. So I I wrote this thing that uh on in you know, in praise of a good dog because to me when you're breeding dogs that what you're primarily looking for is not a phenomenon. Just by its very definition, a phenomenon is rare. If it wasn't rare it wouldn't be a phenomenon. Yeah. Right? Yep. So if you have a lot of phenomenons, it's, it's now it's I normalized. I understand now yeah. the title of your article, in praise of a good dog. A good dog. Right. Not a phenomenal dog. Right. Just a good dog. Right. Now, Got it. Got it. What you're looking for, to me, in breeding is consistency. Over a period of generations, will your dogs catch what you want caught? We didn't quite finish that conversation because people will talk of things about like uh, it, the, a dog's mouth. Does it have a good mouth? Now, I don't personally like a silent trail dog because I want to hear the race. That's To me, that's the enjoyable part of hunting is hearing the race. Yeah. So even if a silent dog is producing more, I still want to hear it. Yeah. Which I don't particularly think they catch anymore. But, um, but if a dog has a great mouth but he's not catching game, then the mouth, it's like having a horn on a car with no engine. Yeah. It's relevant. it's an add on. It's an extra. It's a it's good. Yeah. But it's not the fundamental. But a yeah. lot of people are looking for the like a tree dog. What if a what if a dog trees 120 barks a minute? But can't catch game. But can't catch game. What I mean, what's the point of that dog? To me, he's right. useless. I mean, right. he's completely useless. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, a bear dog to me, we were talking about traits, the, the tree aspect on a bear dog is not how many barks a minute he puts off, but will he stay tree till I get there? Yeah. Yeah. If he will stay treed until you get there, that's a good tree dog. So it doesn't matter if he's backed off the tree. I, I hear a lot of people talking about big game dogs, and they say, well, he's not a real good He's not a real good tree dog. He'll back off the tree and sit down and look up. And I, I'm, I even come from a coon hunting background, yeah. and I'm kind of like, well, as long as he's there and he's barking, well, it really doesn't matter if he's standing on the tree or not. I can't speak for every bear hunter. But to me, I think some of that probably flows out of the coon dog vernacular, For belly sure. rubbing tree dog and stuff. Yeah. A good a good tree dog to me, number one, is one that stays till I get there. Number two is one who barks till I get there. Don't have to be 120 barks a minute, but yep. I, he needs to keep barking. Yep. If it's 30 barks a minute, but he will do it for six hours if he's in a bad place. Yeah. That's, that's all you need. That's fine. Uh, yeah. But backing off the tree... I like a dog that stays back off the tree. A lot of bear dogs will back up a bank so he can look straight across at the bear. Mm-hmm. And uh, the good part about that to me, to some extent, is they stay out of trouble. Right. See, there's a misperception that bear dogs are ill. And that's totally backwards because if, and, I, and I'm not opposed to coon hunting. I'm for coon hunting. I enjoy it. You and I have talked about yeah. that this week. Yeah. but. If you have an ill coon dog in today's world you're and you're hunting a woodlot, if you have trouble at the tree, you can be there in 10 minutes. If you have an ill bear dog at the tree, you might not be there for five or six hours. Yeah. Depending on how hard it is to get to the tree. Yeah. And if you've got an ill dog there, you just won't have dogs that are hurt. You'll have dogs that are dead. Yeah. Yeah. And so you cannot allow... Uh, an eel tree dog to be part of your pack at all he right. cannot be ill and a dog if you hunt in mixed packs like if you've got buddies you hunt with or occasionally you know if you bear hunt you're going to end up hunting with a stranger somewhere and say he's got one it is a little rough on a tree you know i don't want mine you know fighting back and you know yeah, you don't want your dog, dog in the there tree. jumping and running if he's sitting back he's staying out of trouble back up stay there till i get there stay out of trouble and because you know on these bear trees there's usually not going to be just one dog there's going to be lots of dogs yeah. yep. so just for people that aren't used to this bear hunting like you're turning several a lot of dogs loose but well, hey end us with a can you think of an iconic bear hunting story from these mountains if it's recent or old yeah you before we get to that you asked me if there was anything i wanted to say just in yeah. general can yeah. i touch on that before Absolutely. the story um, I, I'm an observer of people and, uh, through social media, you get to observe a lot of people who, who hound hunt. And there's a few things that if I had the opportunity to say to people who were in hound hunting, then the, one of the things that I would say is this, it would be relax and learn to enjoy the experience as much as you enjoy the final product Mm -hmm. because your life is so short and if you spend your hunting career mad about something frustrated about something tore all to pieces about something fighting with other people you're going to waste your life and the whole purpose you're out there is to enjoy it if it's not i don't you're we eat the meat but you can buy beef 
we're yeah. there for the experience. Yeah. So if you're if you are the person who's ruining your own experiences because you can't deal with every little thing that happens, you're never gonna. You probably ought to quit hound hunting. Because I grew up around people, some of them were wired up so strong that they hunted all their life, but I'm not sure they enjoyed it as much as other people. But my papa, man, he enjoyed hunting as much as any. There, there was better bear hunters than Barry Tarleton, but nobody enjoyed it more. Mm. So I think he was the winner. That's saying a lot right there. So learn to enjoy it. And the next thing I would say is this is, don't try to make your hounds an extension of who you are as a person in reference to your own pride. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some people that their whole life is built around what their dogs do. And what happens there is they end up, again, not enjoying it. And two, making life so difficult on their hounds that their hounds can't enjoy being hounds either. But... You know, you're who you are as a human being and what kind of person you are is going to tell a lot by the the way you deal with others and the way you deal with hunting. And so, and then to go along with that is, and maybe this is the pastor coming out in me, if you don't mind me throwing this out there, if it's not too far off ground, is keep keep your, your hound hunting in its in its rightful place right um prioritization yeah uh i know people are not listening to this podcast because they want to hear me preach at them but there are some things in this life that are more important your wife's more important Mm -hmm. and your kids are more important and uh i've seen a lot of destruction and my grandpa, he tried to help some people along these lines. You know, if you if you'll keep it in its rightful place and in its rightful perspective, you can have a balanced life where you enjoy your hounds, and your wife can enjoy you having your hounds, and your kids can enjoy you having those too. Right. And uh, you know, I I know it's foolish to say this, but I see these memes that these boys put on Facebook that. It'll show them throwing their girlfriend off a cliff. You know, yeah. she told me it was either me or the hounds, and you see yep. her falling off a cliff. Yep. You know, I know there's probably some humor in that for a kid. But as a dad, if I look at that and that's my daughter going off the cliff because some some boy has that mentality toward my daughter, yeah, yeah. he's not the right guy. Yeah. There's no perspective whatsoever there. Right. And, and I say that because... At some point, if that's all your life is, you're not going to be happy with that either. It, right. it, there's going to no, going to be no satisfaction right. for you in that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because that's that's the the key to life is balance and understanding priorities. Yeah. And I think it goes not just for hound hunters, but for anybody that is passionate about hunting or, or for really passionate about anything, but. Guys that are passionate about hunting tend to be, can be eccentric and so focused on this one aspect of their life. That that's great. 
You know, I'm glad you said that about the memes because I, I think that every time. I would never in my life post a meme or something like that. I mean, yeah. it, it, because obviously it, it, it might be funny, uh, but there's truth behind what's being said and stuff like that. And, and uh, oh, yeah. your family's got to be your family. There's, there's a lot. There's a lot that's in line above that. But And hound hunting is all-encompassing. I think that to somebody that's not been around the hound world, what what Tracy's saying is that is true is that to have 20 hounds in your backyard and to hunt those dogs and to breed those dogs and care for those dogs and to have them for decades kind of is can be all encompassing it can dominate your life it can and family plays a major role in that deal there and uh which this is a totally different subject, but I'm reminded of it as we talk about these things, just random things, you know, that I would want to say about the whole matter is, and I said this at the supper table maybe last night, uh, that states are trying to figure out how to get more kids into hunting because hunting number hunt, hunter numbers are dwindling. Right. There's very few bear hunters left in East Tennessee and Western North Carolina. Hmm compared to what it was years ago i mean it's it's going downhill they won't have to outlaw bear hunting there ain't gonna be nobody left to do it hmm. Hmm. and uh, i believe that part of the reason for that is because kids are being raised too soft and i believe hunters are partly responsible for that the men that i was raised around i mean they they were good to me and I tagged along with them, but they expected me as a kid, you know, to participate not just in the shooting, but also in the work, leading the dogs, handling the dogs, helping the dogs, feeding the dogs, taking care of everything. Uh, you know, taking dogs into the person who had found the track and so forth. And, uh, today what you see is the adults who are just, obsessed with getting their five-year-old six-year-old seven-year-old kid in there to shoot their first animal when that kid has no clue what's taking place in the yeah. in the totality of things yeah and once they've gone in and killed it what's left for them yeah i i actually think we we probably are not building the kind of kids that can be bear hunters now yeah. And it takes a certain kind of person, a certain kind of mindset that can handle that day after day business of dealing with hounds and mountains and swamps and other things. Yeah. And uh even and we're making things so easy on the kids and we don't have any expectation for them to work hard and to do their part and yeah. to wait for the reward. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep, it's it's kind of the trend of modern culture that's brought itself into hunting. Is that hey, the way that we recruit these kids is we make it really easy for them. And I'm I'm with you 100%. But we've got to have hunter recruitment. We got to involve our kids. But oh man, I could do a whole podcast on how I've what I've done with my kids. And I and I've, I think I've made some mistakes, but I think I've also done some things right. Um, but I'm 100% agreeing with you on what you're saying i mean you got you got to make it it was 
Hunting was hard for me growing up. Yeah. I know that. It was. My dad did not make it easy for us. Sure. And he kind of ran my brothers off from it in some ways. Um, but but that being said, it, it it wasn't his fault. I mean, it just, just – This a, is an over-exaggeration just to prove a point. But the way I would maybe explain it is you got kids that have killed multiple animals that couldn't tell you what a white oak was wouldn't know a white oak from a poplar they don't know anything about the woods they don't know anything about the game they they are just handed the end result on a platter by people who have worked their whole life to get there it's a great example great example and I, i think they need to be told when they're young son this is important to our family this is how we do our business you help with the dogs. You lead things. You feed things. You take care you of stuff. Some investment, in and it. at some point it'll be right, and I'll let you know when. Yeah. Yep. That's good. Well, hey, I'll, I'll give this offer to you again. Bear story. All right. End our podcast. I think the one that I will mention is Ben. The first bear Ben got to kill. Since we're talking about kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were living in Montana. I pastored out there, and in Montana at that time, you couldn't kill big game until you were 12. Mm. So we were going to be moving out of Montana uh, in late fall, and the big game seasons were opening, and uh, he had turned 12 the previous December, so I was able to get him started hunting. He killed his first mule deer buck, killed his first elk, I took him pheasant hunting. I had a nice English pointer. He went three for three on the first three pheasants that ever come up in front of him. Mm. And uh, obviously, I was just tickled to death with that. And uh, we moved back to Tennessee. And we got back here. And if if I remember right, it was the last day of bear season. It was on a Wednesday. And uh, I, I remember it was on a Wednesday because we went to church that night. And most people had already used their vacation up. The hunter numbers up on the mountain were, you know, pretty low. And it was just, it was me and Ben and my pat ball. And uh, at the time, he was like probably 78, mm. 75, 78, somewhere out right in there. I'd have to calculate that. Ben was 12, just getting ready to turn 13. And... Uh, it was up on a place called Kennedy Cabin, and I walked out uh, a trail called the Fire Scald. On the way out, I just had one dog with me. I was just looking to see if we could find something to turn loose. On the way out, I didn't find anything. Turned around, and it's coming back and struck one red hot. Mm. So it crossed, in it crossed behind, behind me. So I called on the radio, and I told... Uh, Ben to bring me I just think we had maybe four dogs with us that day something like that told him to bring me the other dogs well my papaw who was in his upper 70s there mid to upper 70s came with him leading Mm -hmm. dogs and just us three and uh turned loose the bear went down off the camp creek side of the mountain I won't go into a lot of details because the listeners wouldn't know what I was talking about anyways, but it made a huge loop around the side of the mountain, turned and came back and crossed not far from where we had turned loose. 
drop on the opposite side of the mountain and uh, we were still up on top it just so happened that bear was going to try to cross the road headed toward north carolina and we had some friends that had come up behind us and they were able to get block the road and get it turned and it went back up the mountain they packed on a few dogs there and we got it treed hmm. so we went down the road and came back up and uh i went up to the tree it was up on sort of a steep face and i was at the base of the tree and ben had been brought in by my cousin benny laws and was with another man i know dolphus cut was there i know uh bill carter was there and he was able to shoot the bear from the bottom and he shot it with uh my dad had bought a marlin lever action in 35 remington was his first rifle he bought Hmm. in the early 70s and i don't know how many bear daddy killed with that gun several and so ben was able to kill his first bear with that same rifle and that was Hmm. probably my favorite day i've ever been in the woods really yeah neat of any any hunting i've ever done just because my grandfather me and now my son were all there together right yeah hunting the same dogs you know that i grew up with that's great yeah that's great well hey thank you so much for hosting me the last two days i know if we if i'd been able to stay a bit a little bit longer we'd probably would have done better two days is not much time yeah but thank you so much for having us great Appreciate time you coming. really impressed with just everything you guys are doing so hey thanks for listening to the bear hunting magazine podcast check out bear hunting magazine we're the only print bear hunting magazine in the world we're on our 20th year 20th year oh man yeah. that's great yeah. yeah coming into 2019 we actually haven't well it's the it's the it's the 19th volume but the 20 in into the 20th year of bear hunting magazine and uh, in this january february issue which we got to print three days ago that's why i was able to come on this hunt i had to get it to print I went to print on monday is a story of tarleton's houston valley cub Yep. which was a dog that just passed away a month ago. Yep. yep. And we did a legendary bear hound article on one of these Houston Valley dogs that was uh, Ben and Tracy's, one of their one of their favorite hounds. And yep. just, uh, so anyway, there's an article about that. You'll be able to read more. And uh, so check out Bear Hunting Magazine. Check out our YouTube channel, as I always say, and keep the wild places wild, because that's where the bears live. <laughs> <laughs> You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.